Well, this morning we begin a nine-part study through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And reading through Paul's letter this past week, it became apparent that this letter is, is very relevant to us as individuals and as a congregation. Let me just mention some of the ways that this letter speaks directly into our lives. And, and as you listen, prayerfully consider... Whether or not there is something in Philippians that you need to hear, think more deeply about, meditate on, or that we as a congregation need to hear corporately, maybe maybe write it down. Uh, Make it a matter of, of prayer over the course of this study. Paul's letter to the Philippians, he reminds us that we are but servants of Christ and that Jesus is our Lord. We're reminded that we've been set apart, sanctified, and and called to be holy. Thanks for fellow believers in this letter. It's modeled by Paul. And we're challenged how to grow in affection and love for one another. That means we we can't stay where we are. We we have to grow in love and affection for one another. With Paul, we, we learn to pray that we and others would grow in love and knowledge and discernment so that, so the purpose of that growing in love, knowledge, and discernment, so that we might be holy and righteous. In this letter, we're challenged to consider that whatever happens in our lives happens to serve the advance of the good news of Jesus Christ. We're, We're challenged in this letter to be bold, to speak for Christ, and to speak of Christ. We're called to be generous toward others. And grateful that others proclaim Christ, whether out of good or bad motives. Perhaps, perhaps we can be overly critical of other believers who proclaim Christ. And this should not be. This letter confronts our complaining head-on. And we're called to be content with whatever God has for us in the present. And trust Him with whatever we might face in the future. All the while... We're called to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, do our lives demonstrate the worth, the eternal riches that we claim and proclaim? Paul, he demands, he demands that the church in Philippi pursue humility and unity. He, he actually commands them to rejoice. To be joyful. Did you know that you could commend someone to be joyful, to rejoice? He, he calls the Philippians and us not to serve their own interests, but the interests of others. At one point, he actually pleads with two believers by name in his letter. Can you imagine that? Like being called out from the pulpit in the service. Two believers. Hey, you two. He calls them to agree in the Lord. And then he names somebody else and he says, you, I want you to to help them agree in the Lord. Paul urges him to be a a peacemaker in the congregation. If we have conflict in our body, are we willing to to step in, to mediate and to labor for reconciliation? Are, Are we ready to help those who disagree? Does anyone here struggle with anxiety? Do we struggle to set our minds on righteous things? Are we ready to to practice the things that we've been taught? Are we ready to actually put the word to work in our lives? 
Are we ready to share in the trouble of others? To join them in their suffering and sorrow? Are we ready to generously support missionaries and ministries? Do we live with a conscious awareness that our citizenship is not on earth, but in heaven? Our fundamental citizenship is in heaven. Are we eager to discard individualism and imitate faithful believers who are pursuing conformity to the image of Christ? Now, if you can believe it, that's barely half of the things in this letter that apply most directly to us as individual believers and as a congregation. Did, did any of those strike you as something you need to hear or we need to hear as a church? There is, there, there must be, for this is God's word to us. You probably noticed in, in your bulletins that this morning we're only taking up two verses from Paul's letter. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In fact, if you haven't done so, uh, let me invite you just to turn in your Bibles, to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We're looking at verses 1 and 2. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 980. 980. In, in, in one sense, it's true that we're only taking up two verses from Paul's letter. In another sense, we're taking up the whole of Paul's letter this morning. These verses function not only as a greeting, but also as the frame for Paul's message throughout the letter. Please follow along as I read Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These verses highlight key themes in the letter. For example, service is chiefly revealed in Christ Jesus. And all who follow after him will give themselves in service to him and others. Being a saint, a holy one, a set-apart one, means pursuing righteousness and holiness day by day. It means working out your salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul will say in this letter. Grace is how we're saved. It's what we boast in, and it's what we extend. Peace with God is not only what we have by grace, but is also what we pursue in relation to others. In this letter, Paul entreats believers to be at peace with one another. We're going to unpack this greeting, the, the letter as a whole, under three headings. Servants, saints, and salutations. Servants, saints, and salutations. See if you can spot those three ideas in these verses as we reread Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's begin with our first point, servants. And here's the phrase that we're looking at under this heading. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. You know, today, our letters typically conclude by revealing the author. Uh, we sign our emails and our letters warmly, Joe, and sincerely, Jane. 
But in the ancient world, authors would often reveal themselves right up front. The, the authors of this letter are Paul and Timothy. Now, in, in all likelihood, Paul is the, the primary author of this letter. After all, personal pronouns, as you, as you read the letter, they predominate uh, throughout after this greeting. And Paul actually, in the letter, expresses his desire to send Timothy to the church in Philippi in chapter 2. Still, Timothy likely had some part in the composition of this letter, whether it was being Paul's scribe or working with him on its contents or in some other fashion. Paul's the, the primary, he's a principal author of this letter, and in some secondary sense, Timothy's an author as well. Who are these men? These men are Paul and Timothy. They're, they're fellow gospel workers and partners in ministry. Luke, he, he actually chronicles their journey in ministry together in Acts chapter 15 through 20. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 19, we're told that these brothers in Christ, Paul and Timothy, that they were preaching the gospel together to the church in Corinth. These are men who spend their lives spreading the name of Christ. They work together in this mission, but there's, there's one who has seniority among them. That's Paul. Paul, he has a, a, a remarkable story. He first appears in the New Testament under the name Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. Though he was wicked, he was something of an early Renaissance man. The, the picture that we're given from the beginning is that this young, perhaps only 20, zealous, well-educated rabbi, specifically a Pharisee, he's, and he's a tent maker. He seems to have happily participated in the persecution of the church in Jerusalem, even going from house to house, ravaging the church and dragging men and women off and committing them to prison. We're told in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, that while he was still breathing threats, murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord Jesus, he received special permission from the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem to leave Jerusalem to go and capture Christians and to bring them back to Jerusalem bound. But something remarkable happened between Paul's zealous persecution of Christians in the church and this really affectionate letter uh, to the church in Philippi. We should read what happens to Paul. So keeping one finger here in Philippians, we're going to do this a lot today, keeping one finger here in Philippians, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage, I believe, on page 917. Acts chapter 9. I want us to, to read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. Take a look at what happens to Saul, who we now know today as Paul. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's any belonging to the way of Jesus Christ, any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. From here, Saul's life was forever changed. Not only did his name change from Saul to Paul, but after this, instead of persecuting the church, he started preaching to the church. 
He even started preaching in places that had no church. That's how he ended up in Philippi and starting the church in Philippi. Paul planted the church in Philippi between 49 and 51 AD. And he wrote this letter to the Philippian congregation sometime between 51 AD and 63 AD, depending on where you think he was at the time of the writing of his letter. Well, where was Paul when he was writing this letter? Turn back to Philippians chapter 1, and we'll see it right there in verse 7. That's page 980 of the Bibles provided. Take a look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 7. We, we read this there. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. What a difference in Paul's life, right? He used to hate Christians, but now he's, he's holding them in his heart. It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul, when he wrote this letter, he was in prison. This happened over and over and over again throughout Paul's life. Uh, when he writes this letter, there are at least four possible places for Paul's imprisonment. Rome, Ephesus, Corinth, and Caesarea. Uh, Paul's imprisonment is mentioned also in verses 13 and verse 17 of chapter 1. Wherever it was, this was a serious imprisonment. T take a look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1. 19 and 20 of chapter 1. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul's in prison, he's writing this. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers... And the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. See, Paul's imprisonment could end in his death, but he, he's not ashamed or afraid. He is entrusting his life to his faithful creator. That's Paul. Or at least a brief introduction to Paul. Who's Timothy? Who's this fellow with Paul? Well, Timothy, interestingly enough, he steps onto the scene in the New Testament by walking in the path of Paul's second missionary journey. Shortly before Paul arrives in Philippi, um, we meet Timothy in his hometown of Lystra in Acts chapter 16, verse 1. There we learn that Timothy was of, of mixed heritage. His mother was Jewish and his father was a Greek. When did Timothy come to know Jesus Christ as his Savior? Well, we really don't know for certain, but it may have been on Paul's first missionary journey. Paul had passed through Timothy's hometown on his first journey. So perhaps Timothy had heard his preaching before. Whatever the case may be, we know that from Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, that his heart had been prepared to receive the good news of Jesus by his mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, through their training him in the Old Testament scriptures. Through Paul's letter, we, we learn, letters, we learn that Timothy was sent often to, to kind of handle apostolic business for Paul here and there. We'll actually see that in Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 19 to 23, that Paul intends to send Timothy to the Philippian congregation to uh, report back on how the church is doing. Timothy served Christ with Paul, and, and essentially we'll, we'll hear Paul later say that he's his son in the faith. So Timothy is a very dear person to Paul himself. Timothy's mentioned in, in three special letters from Paul. He's actually uh, mentioned in more than three letters, but what's peculiar about Timothy's mention in, in the letters of Philemon, Colossians, and Philippians is, as you probably guessed, Paul's writing these 
from prison. So let's, let's just stop and think about this for a moment. Um, Paul, a considerably older man than Timothy, likely, is, is writing letters to the churches he loves and serves. He's bound in chains, and Timothy is serving Christ with him. Take a look at, at verse 1 again of Philippians chapter 1. How do Paul and Timothy identify themselves? They identify themselves as servants of Christ. Here, here's the thing. Paul's no commoner in the eyes of the Christian church. And he's no common convert. As we read in Acts chapter 9, Paul was addressed by the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. That was his conversion experience. What is more, as we learn in Acts and in his other letters, he was divinely commissioned to speak for the Lord Jesus. He's an author of inspired Holy Scripture. He is a special figure in the early church, and rightly so. He was an apostle. But notice here, he doesn't identify himself by his apostolic status. He identifies himself as a servant. This had to be intentional, I think, on Paul's part. In eight of his 13 letters, the majority of his letters, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. He does so in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Timothy, but not here in Philippians. Why? Well, the reason, I think, Paul does not present his apostolic credentials is that during the course of this letter, Paul is going to call the Philippian church to give themselves to humble service. And, and I think that, that that may be the main theme of this letter. So if you're looking for something that ties the whole letter together, I think it's this. that The, the main theme of Philippians is that followers of Christ are humble servants like Christ. Followers of Christ are humble servants like Christ. In fact, uh, our translations um, somewhat understate how Paul identifies himself. Um, Paul does not merely call himself a servant. He says something even more forceful. He actually calls himself a slave. That's what's underneath that word servant. Slavery in the, the Greco-Roman world was considerably different than our 19th century, uh, the, the 19th century chattel slavery in, in the Western world. Still, both forms of slavery share something in common. A slave is not solo, but bound to and belonging to another. Slaves serve the wills of their masters and not their own. What Paul and Timothy are saying is that they are bound to, they belong to Christ Jesus. They must serve Him. But this, we must remember, turns the very concept of their service on its head. It is no shame to serve the Savior. It is an unimaginably high honor and privilege. For Christ Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father on high. Paul and Timothy serve the highest Lord in the universe. What about you? Are you a servant of Christ? Do you serve the highest one in the universe? Do you recognize the high privilege of being a servant of Christ? Not only do Paul and Timothy serve the highest Lord in the universe, but they also serve a Lord who came to serve sinners like them, like you and me. Remember before his death, Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Christ 
that Paul and Timothy are serving was first the servant of sinners. That's what Paul's going to say in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. So, so flip over to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, and see for yourself that Paul is reminding the Philippians that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, clung onto, held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul will use Christ's service to call the Philippians into service, into the service of one another. He will say, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In the opening greeting, Paul's careful not to mention his apostolic authority, for it would undercut the theme of humility and service, which is so pronounced in this letter. In, in the opening greeting, back in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, we, we actually see there aren't really true, two servants. Did you notice that there are three there? Paul, Timothy, and Christ Jesus. In fact, we need to set our eyes on this servant, on Christ Jesus, for just a moment. Who is this Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, as he's called in verse 2? That word Christ is just another word for Messiah. In other words, the one that Paul and Timothy serve is the one the Old Testament scriptures promised. He is the one who, in God's kindness, would come to defeat sin and death through bearing our sin and being put to death. He is the suffering servant that Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah chapter 53, saying he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He is the Christ, the Son promised, who would come to serve sinners by crushing the head of the serpent. And he's also Jesus. He was called Jesus, which means the Lord saves, because that's what he came to do. His whole life was given to serving sinners and saving them from the punishment that's rightly due to their sin. Has he served you? Is he your Messiah, your Savior? He is, if you have confessed your sin and confessed your need of Him. Jesus is your Messiah and Savior. If you receive the gift of His righteous life lived on your behalf, His sacrificial death on the cross, and His victorious resurrection from the grave on the third day. Friends, the truth is, is that we were all made servants. It's what we will inevitably do with our lives. We'll either serve ourselves or we'll serve Christ Jesus. So I plead with you to turn from serving yourself and your sin and to believe that Jesus has lived a life of suffering and sacrificial service in order to save you from sin. And if you want to know more about what that means, what it means that Jesus is your Messiah, is your Savior, and you follow Him, you repent of your sins and turn and trust in Him, please come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or the family. <coughs> the family member that you came here with this morning. We'd love to talk to you about this good news. Well, we've met the, the three servants in this greeting, Paul, Timothy, and Christ Jesus. Let's turn now and meet the saints who are greeted. This is the second thing that we want to consider from verse 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. 
In the second half of verse 1, Paul addresses three groups of people together. Broadly speaking, Paul addresses the church as a whole when he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And then Paul addresses the officers in the church. But notice how he keeps them together. He uses that word with. In other words, Paul's saying something like, look, I'm writing to you the whole church. And by that, I mean to include your overseers and deacons. This is a carefully crafted address. It's, it's theologically sharp and precise. Paul writes to all the saints, or as some translations put it, to all the holy ones. That word saint is not a, um, it's not a super spiritual designation as is so often used in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church has, frankly, uh, made up a different category of saint than what we find in the Bible. When Paul writes to the saints in Philippi, he's simply writing to all believers, to all holy ones, all those who have been set apart and sanctified for salvation. And that all that you see there, that's significant too. As we're going to find out a little later in this letter, Paul will plead with the congregation to be united, to be of the same mind. So, so look at Philippians chapter 1. Verses 27 to 30. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul, he wants the church in Philippi to be one in spirit and one in mind. And part of what that often means for each local church and each member in each local church is that we have to be thinking about how our actions and words affect the whole. While we are individuals, we are not independent. God's design for the church is to be an interdependent family. Not only that, but we need each other. As we see here, we need to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. We need each other's encouragement and prayer in our evangelistic efforts. We need each other so that we're not frightened by our opponents. As Paul says in verse 28, skip over to chapter 3 where we catch an apparent glimpse of Paul's warning against these opponents. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul writes, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who, who mutilate the flesh. Scholars uh, reasonably suggest that these were Jewish missionaries who were aggressively pushing for converts at Philippi. This congregation needed to be united in the face of opposition. This was also a congregation that was tempted toward division and fear. Part of the reason that Paul wrote this letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi was to urge them to hang in there together. Just... In case you're not there, turn back to Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And notice that Paul, he actually further qualifies this address. He's not merely writing to all the saints. He's writing to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus. Now, all saints are in Christ Jesus, but Paul gives us this extra detail. At one level, to be a saint is by definition to be in Christ. But, but this, you've got to know, is one of Paul's favorite phrases that he trots out in his letters. In Christ or in Christ Jesus, uh, he, he, he brings this out in many of his letters. Uh, given that Paul has just addressed God's holy ones, saints, or those sanctified, it seems best to understand that Paul is referring to our union with Christ. Faith is, is an embrace of Jesus. It brings us out of Adam and into the second Adam. 
In Christ, we now receive all of His blessings and benefits. Justification, adoption, and sanctification. Assurance of God's love. Peace of conscience. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Increase of grace. And perseverance unto the end. This is what we receive in Christ. In Christ, His life, death, and resurrection become our life, death, and resurrection. Being found in Christ is what we want most. Or at least it should be. It's what Paul wanted most. Skip back over to Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. And as we read, see if you can spot what is most important to Paul. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, in Jesus, in the Holy One, we are made holy ones. In and through Jesus and His work, we are sanctified and set apart as God's saints. And this means something for us too. If we are holy, if we are saints, then we ought to live like it. Those who are truly holy ones live holy lives. Earlier in the service, we read from Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul urged the church to let their life, their, their manner of life, be worthy of the gospel. What a challenge. Are, are our lives worthy of the gospel? Are we living life in such a way that testifies to the worth of the gospel? Paul isn't just writing to the saints in Christ Jesus who are scattered everywhere. He's writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. What do we know about this church in Philippi? Well, we've already seen some things about them from the letter itself. We've seen that they're frightened and fractured. We're going to gather some more information from the letter itself in just a moment. But for now, let's, let's go back to the, be the beginning and take a look at its founding. So keeping one finger here in Philippians chapter 1, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. That's page uh, 925 of the Bibles provided. Acts chapter 16. Uh, in, in the course of his life, Paul, he went on three missionary journeys. Um, he was basically running around everywhere preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and particularly that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who died and was raised and, and is reigning and ruling. This is what he was preaching. And by God's grace, he had a, a fruitful and productive ministry. The church in Philippi is founded on Paul's second missionary journey. So in the beginning of Acts chapter 16, you may see that, that Paul, he scoops up young Timothy in the area of Lystra and Derbe. From there, they move on to the areas of Phrygia and Galatia, Acts chapter 16, verse 6. And that's where they are when they're, when they're stopped by the Holy Spirit. They're stopped. And Paul, he has this vision in the night of the man from Macedonia calling them to come over and help them. And it's through that intervention of the Holy Spirit that the church in Philippi comes into existence. So follow along as I read in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 15. This is how the church gets started. 
So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to uh, Samothrace, and uh, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia. Remember the man from Macedonia saying, come, come on over and help us, right? It's a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained there in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside, to the, uh, outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Sometimes we need to prevail upon people to come and be at our homes and be hospitable. Um, from, from this text and from, from other ancient sources, we learn a good bit about Philippi. Notice the prominence of the city here, even in this text itself. Luke, the author of Acts, he, he describes Philippi as a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Uh, from historical records, we know that uh, Philippi was founded by Philip II of Macedon. He was actually the father of Alexander the Great. And when you found a city, uh, you get to name the city. And so it was called Philippi. It was the place where important battles took place. It was where Julius Caesar's assassins were defeated. And it's where Octavian defeated Antony. And all of this is to say is it's a prestigious city in, 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 history, in the history of the Roman Empire. And after a significant battle, Octavian, he, he rebuilt Philippi, uh, and it became a retirement city for, for military officers. So because it was a Roman colony, the, cities, uh, the citizens of Philippi were granted Roman citizenship. And part of that meant that some of them didn't have to pay taxes. So it was a, a really grand thing to be a resident, a citizen of Philippi. There were great privileges as a part of being citizens of Rome and residents of Philippi. But in Paul's letter, one of the interesting things that Paul says in his letter is that believers have an even greater privilege. We are citizens of heaven, according to Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. That's something that we must always remember. We, we come from different and, and great nations. We should give thanks to God for our, our various backgrounds and heritages. Ultimately, though, as believers in Jesus, our citizenship is in heaven. That kingdom and that nation must have our ultimate allegiance. Given what we just read in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 15, uh, what we learn is that the first member of the church in Philippi was a, a wealthy woman named Lydia. And the Lord appears to have used her conversion to bring about her whole household to faith. But he wasn't done in Philippi. In verses 16 to 24, Paul and another brother named Silas, they get thrown into prison for miraculously releasing a poor slave girl from a spirit of divination. And at the heart of all of this was, was money. Right? Her owners were mad that they, weren't gonna, that they were going to lose money. But we also see the pride in Philippi's Roman culture come out in their response. Part of their charge against Paul is that he is taking Roman custom head on. Paul and Silas, they, they get beat up, they get shackled, and thrown into prison. And all of this, 
the Lord knew was important for the founding of the church. He had guards in the prison that needed to be saved. So let's pick up reading in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. A wealthy woman and her household, a jailer and his household. This is how church in Philippi starts. Wonderfully and miraculously through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ then. It starts with Paul simply being faithful to share the good news with those he came in contact and with God sending his spirit into their hearts to bring them to saving faith in Jesus. It is ordinary, the speaking of the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is extraordinary, the Spirit moving into their hearts. It's ordinary and extraordinary, all roll into one. That's how salvation happens. Well, we need to turn back to Philippians 1 again, because there's another group of saints that Paul attaches to this greeting, all the saints who are in Christ Jesus at Philippi. That's page 980 of the Bibles provided. Do you remember who Paul said was with all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi? He mentioned the, the overseers. And the deacons. This is something unique about this greeting. Right? So this, this makes this greeting very different from others in the scripture of Paul's writings. Paul doesn't uh, mention or include overseers or deacons in any of his other greetings in his epistles. These are uh, the two church offices that Paul details in his pastoral epistles in uh, 1 Timothy and in Titus. These are the two biblical and primary offices in the church. Overseers, they're, they're also known as pastors and elders in Acts chapter 20. Uh, they're in the plural, most often, almost always, actually. And they're those who lead God's church through public teaching, shepherding, and prayer. Uh, now note here that there's, uh, as I said, a, a plurality of overseers. Literally, uh, it's actually bishops. Um, there's also a plurality of deacons in the church in Philippi. Deacons, or servants, were those who serve the particular needs of the body. So, for example... Uh, when the church uh, first needed deacons, when this office was first established in Acts chapter 6, they oversaw the distribution of food to widows in the Jerusalem congregation, the Jerusalem church. Like the New Testament church, like the church in Philippi, we too, as a congregation, have overseers and deacons. We normally call our overseers uh, elders. Uh, and sometimes we call them pastors. But what's important to, to know is that it's actually all the same office. Uh, this office in the church is responsible, as I said, for, for teaching, prayer, and oversight. We also have deacons 
in our congregation who address and attend to particular needs in the body. We have uh, deacons of hospitality who help us to be a, a welcoming congregation. Well, what needs do they see to? Well, uh, they make sure there's coffee. That's, coffee is one need of our body. Um, but they also help to cultivate fellowship among our congregation through, through meals, like the one we're going to have before our members meeting. We have other deacons, too, um, each overseeing a particular need of our body, such as the preparation for the service uh, and, and uh, child care. These are just some of the needs that we presently have as a congregation. Um, our needs may change, and so may the number of our deacons, and what they're oriented to may change as well. It's interesting to ponder why Paul may have explicitly included overseers and deacons in this greeting. Given the call to unity that we see throughout the letter of Philippians, it's reasonable to assume that this is important since the overseers of the congregation would need to teach and model the letter's truth concerning servanthood and humility. Similar to the overseers and elders, uh, the deacons are likely the most visible and active model of servanthood and humility to the congregation. Their role is crucial to continuing cultivation of humility, service, unity, and therefore really joy. There's one last thing that we should know about the saints in Philippi. This address doesn't bring it out, but we should bear in mind as we read this letter. The church in Philippi, they loved Paul. And they were generous supporters of his work. Make your way to the end of the letter, to chapter 4. And, and you'll see this. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, uh, we learn that this congregation was concerned for Paul in his imprisonment. This is an example of his love. So, so Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have received your, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Though they had no opportunity to express their concern for Paul, they, they finally found a way. So in verse 14 of that same chapter, Paul, he commends the Philippians for their kindness and sharing in his trouble. What, what, a, what a Christian thing to do, to come alongside a burdened brother or sister in order to sympathize and maybe even suffer with them. Not only did they come alongside Paul, but they well supplied him with a financial gift. You see that in Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. You see, actually, food and water was not always a given in Roman imprisonments. Those who were imprisoned there would often have to be supplied from the outside. And it seems like the Philippians may have done that for Paul while he's been in prison. Well, these, these are the saints in Philippi. They are saved. They're set apart. They're fearful. They're fractured. And they are proud of their city and citizenship in Rome. But really, you need to be proud of their citizenship in heaven. They're anxious. And they need to anticipate glory with Christ. They are selfish and facing serious opponents. The Philippians, they're not a perfect church, but they sincerely loved Paul, and they sincerely loved God. Even more important, they were sincerely loved by Paul and by God. That's part of the aim of Paul's salutation, to remind them of all that they have from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's turn now and consider our third and final point, salutations. As we think about this, let's read Philippians chapter 1. Just verse 2. 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's salutation, his greeting of grace and peace to the Philippians in verse 2 may be a wish. It's kind of a wish, maybe sometimes a, a prayer, maybe a statement of fact. My guess is it's probably actually all three. God's grace and peace have come to them. God's grace and peace is sustaining them. And God's grace and peace will continue to sustain them. God's grace, as we sang earlier, is His unmerited, unearned, um, uh, undeserved favor towards sinners. And peace is the cessation, the end of war and conflict with God. Grace and peace can also be described in terms uh, not as directly related to salvation. So, for example, sometimes we talk about how God was gracious to us in giving us patience and dealing with some frustrating circumstance. That's an outworking of our salvation. Similarly, peace is often a gift that God gives to His people when they're facing trouble and travail. In that instance, peace isn't necessarily a feeling of serenity so much as it is a confidence that God is our good Father. That he loves us. And that Jesus Christ is reigning and ruling as the Lord of the universe. So we can entrust ourselves to him even when we are afraid. The reality is that grace and peace can only come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does, what does that mean? What does it mean for God to be our Father? What does it mean for Jesus to be our Lord? When we call God our Father, we know that this isn't just some general connection between God and men. This is a special connection. The shocking truth is, is not everyone is a child of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 testifies to the fact that by nature, all mankind are children of wrath. Jesus, in John chapter 8, verse 44, even points out that the devil is the father of the Jewish religious leaders. Apart from union with Christ, Adam is our father. Naturally, we are not children of God. But supernaturally and spiritually, we are made children of God. Once we were not God's people, but through His mercy and grace, we become God's people. Jesus is actually the key to understanding what it means that God is our Father. In John chapter 1, verse 12, we learn that all who receive Jesus, that is, all who believed in His name, He gave the rights to become children of God. This is good news, isn't it? The holy God makes us his children. Adoption is God's work through his son and his spirit. In adoption, God brings us into his heavenly family. And so through adoption, God becomes our father. Through the redeeming work of Christ and the uniting power of the Holy Spirit, we are made children of God. We don't adopt ourselves into God's family. That's not how adoption works. No, God adopts us. So when Paul tells the Philippians here that God is our Father, he is speaking about how God the Father has moved toward them and us in love. And it's no wonder that the Apostle John exclaims in 1 John 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. God is not just a Father to us. He is the best Father that we could ever have hope for, or want. Our Heavenly Father is full of boundless love toward us. We know this. For as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Psalm 103, verse 13. Generous 
gentle, and gracious. We do not just have a good father. We have the best father. The holy God makes us his children. And he does it by faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that Paul mentions the Lord Jesus Christ in such close connection to God the Father is significant. This is more than likely an attestation to the divinity of Christ. And it's certainly a statement of his exaltation and his authority. Notice that on the two previous occasions, Paul referred to Jesus as Christ Jesus. But here Paul exchanges Christ Jesus for the Lord Jesus Christ. Could it be that the saints in Philippi are struggling between submitting to, submitting to the lordship of their Roman ruler and the lordship of their heavenly ruler? Isn't this something that we should keep in mind as we seek to obey the earthly authorities that rule over us? He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the master of Christians, the one whom we are to obey. He is the one we are to serve, just as Paul gave himself in service to Christ. And this brings us back to the beginning of our text and the conclusion of this sermon. We've met the sermon, the, the, the servants who are sending this letter and the servant who suffers to save. We've met the saints in Philippi and those who lead them. And we've heard Paul's salutations, his greeting and prayer of grace and peace to the church. And there's one just, la just one last thing that we can't be sure to miss. Though this letter is sent to the church in Philippi, from Paul and Timothy, ultimately this letter is about Jesus and what it means to live, love, and serve like Him. Three times in these two verses, Paul mentions Jesus. Do you see that there? Three times. As we read this letter, as we hear its exhortations and receive its instructions, we must keep Jesus in view. Jesus is our model and He is our mold. He is our model, the one we are to follow. He is our mold, the pattern that our lives are to be shaped into. Should the Lord Jesus tarry through our study of this letter, pray that we would come to know Jesus more. Pray that we would long for His appearing and serve Him with greater humility and joy. Would you join me in prayer now? Let's pray together.